Hello, and welcome to Scrub Up, a podcast designed specifically for medical students to help fine-tune your knowledge in gynaecology. I'm Lucy Richards, your show host and education fellow in obstetrics and gynaecology at the John Hunter Hospital and University of Newcastle, and we're recording today on a Awabakal land. So today I'm joined by Dr. Shirley Chen. Thanks so much, Shirley, for joining me. She is a gynecologist at John Hunter Hospital and she's going to help us walk through our first case. Hi, Shirley. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for having me. So the first case we've got today, um, we have a 42-year-old lady by the name of Fatima and she presents with heavy menstrual bleeding and an ultrasound that her GPs performed which shows a, uteri- a uterus that contains two large fibroids, one that's up to eight centimetres in size and the other that's a smaller one, about four centimetres. Fatima describes having had rather heavy periods since her last child was born. She's got an eight-year-old and a 10-year-old who were both born by vaginal birth. She's usually pretty well, but she's recently seen her GP and been found to be uh, quite anemic with a hemoglobin of 90 and a ferritin of three. So the GP had organized an iron infusion and the ultrasound and referred into us. So before we launch into talk a bit more about our case, um, if you don't mind, Shirley, maybe let's just start at the beginning and if you can kind of go through and describe to everyone what is a fibroid, um, which we also call a leomyoma. Yeah, so normally I explain to patients that fibroids are benign growths that um, occur in the muscle of the womb. Um, they're mostly made up of fibroid connective tissue and during surgery, it can feel a little bit like a golf ball. Um, They can range in size and they can sometimes become quite large. And this one, eight centimetres, I would say is pretty decent size. Um, And they can have different effects on fertility and symptoms, but often women present with heavy menstrual bleeding and sometimes with a bit of pelvic um, pressure symptoms, depending on the size and location. Um, We generally define fibroids according to where they arise. So subserosal, if they're under the uterine serosa, that's external, uh, whether it's in the wall of the muscle, whether they're intramural or whether they're submucosal impinging on the uterine cavity. And these are the ones that are significant to um, contributing to issues with fertility. Um, microscopically, they're made up of spindle-shaped cells with no nuclear atypia or mitotic activity. Um, the incidence of fibroids increases with age, and uh, so and also some uh, ethnicities are more prone to developing fibroids, particularly those of African heritage. Brilliant. So. I mean, that's kind of a a strange thing, these fibroids. Do we know why they develop these benign growths? Yeah, it's still a little bit of a mystery. We're not completely well understood why some people get them and others don't. Um, They're thought to arise from a single uterine smooth muscle cell that undergoes um, replication. Um, It's under the classic category of monoclonal tumours and it's also a theory that it is estrogen and progesterone dependent so both of these are found to be implicated in increasing the speed of the fibroid growth. Um, So specific risk factors include people with high BMI and that's thought to be due to the increased risk of um, estrogen effects with increased BMI, older women and women with black ethnicity or background Uh, low vitamin D and also 
weakly associated with people with who have high blood pressure or have early menarche or have used the pill from a very young age. Um, women who haven't had children and who were young at the first um, baby have also been weakly associated with higher risk of developing fibroids. Mm-hmm. Given that these uh, sort of spontaneously arising uterine growths, you kind of think that they maybe were at, associated with an increased risk of a uterine cancer, right? But um, but what is the risk of a fibroid being a cancer or developing into a cancer? Yeah, so it's essentially quite rare. Um, the cancer associated with fibroids is called a uterine leomyosarcoma, Um most fibroids are not malignant and the chance of the rate of sarcoma is less than 1% depending on what studies you read. And so when I counsel women about surgery for fibroids, I always mention that is possibly less than one in a thousand risk of malignancy and we always send off the tissue for histopathology to, um, to exclude that. Okay, great. So we definitely know what a fibroid is now, um, but I'm wondering if maybe you can describe for me how when we when you see a woman like Fatima, how do you go about um, making that kind of initial assessment of what's going on with her? Yeah, so when uh, someone like Fatima presents with her um, issues, I'd like to firstly assess how it's uh, impacting her life. Um, whether the fibroids are causing any mass effects, any pelvic heaviness or pressure, um, and also whether it's causing any heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, For any woman with fibroids or abnormal bleeding, I'd like to clarify where her fertility journey is. Is having kids in the future an important thing for her and her family or is her family complete? And this will affect the treatment options that we end up discussing together. Um, a very small amount of patients present with pain um, and they may have associated symptoms of bloating or urinary um, frequency or incomplete emptying. Um, Occasionally they can present with dyspareunia if the fibroid is posterior um, and general fatigue from anemia from heavy bleeding. Okay, great. So we're definitely going to probe um, when we see Fatima for some of these additional symptoms. And I guess I think this is probably a nice place to just take a little sidestep and remember that there can be other things that cause heavy menstrual bleeding. And sometimes these things even coexist with fibroids. Um, And there's a really great mnemonic that should be plastered into everyone's memory forever onwards. Um, known as palm cohen so palm is the structural causes and cohen makes up the functional causes of heavy menstrual bleeding palm quick reminder p for polyp a for adenomyosis l for leomyoma or fibroids and m for malignancy so that's the palm part and then the cohen is c for coagulopathy o for ovulatory dysfunction so that's things like polycystic ovary syndrome i theatrogenic that's often things like an implanon or a marina that's causing dysfunctional bleeding e for endometrial hyperplasia and n not otherwise specified which can be sort of strange things like arteriovenous malformations and other things so don't forget palm cohen for all the other different causes of heavy menstrual bleeding that we need to think about with this lady 
So coming back to Fatima though, um, when Fatima reports to you, Shirley, that she's had heavy menstrual bleeding that appears to be causing her this sort of significant anemia, how do you go about assessing someone's menstrual loss? Um, What sort of questions do you ask? How do you quantify what's going on? Yeah, so this is something we do every day as gynecologists and heavy menstrual bleeding is a really common issue. It affects one in four women um, everywhere. And so quantifying bleeding is something that's really tricky to do. The textbook definition, although a previous definition for heavy menstrual bleeding is greater than 80 mils of blood per cycle, which is very hard to measure. I'm not sure anyone it can accurately measure this um, and it's important that we take a history about how it affects them symptomatically and how it affects their life. The current accepted definition of heavy menstrual period is heavy uterine bleeding um, that affects a woman's quality of life. Um, so that's the n- recent NICE guideline um, definition from 2018 that we're going with. So the questions that I ask about her menstrual cycle, how regular they are, how many days from the first day of one period to the first day of the next period. And then I ask about heavy days and to tell me more about how heavy her flow is, how many times she changes a menstrual product. There's a lot on the market. So there's the traditional tampons and pads, which can hold anywhere between 10 to 15 mils. Um, And then there's newer menstrual cups, discs, I don't know, menstrual underwear. Um, So there's lots of different products available. But I think the kind of tangible symptoms that I specifically ask about are overflow, if she has any um, accidents and soiling of her clothing or any overflow overnight onto bed sheets um, and if she has any clots and to describe how big the clots are usually using you know 10 50 cent coin as a, a 50 cent coin size as a reference for a, a sizable clot um, if she is changing or flooding through pads every two hours I would say it's quite significant um, and also sometimes they report using double up of pads and tampons or putting it to um, layers of pads together so that is also quite a significant history of bleeding um, I also ask about duration of the menstrual cycle. Typically, it should last less than eight days um, and the average cycle frequency is 24 to 38 days. Mm-hmm. Um, that's about yeah. it for the Yeah, perfect. Symptoms. I think um, I think asking a really nice thorough history is going to give us a good idea of how heavy Fatima's bleeding is. Um, and maybe just, Shirley, while we're, while we're doing this assessment of what's going on with Fatima, what would you look for when you then go on to examine her? What are kind of the key quick findings that you want to know about for her examination? Yeah, so I do a general end of the bed assessment and also assess her for signs of anemia. Um, I do an abdominal examination looking for masses or scars from previous operations. Um, I do a pelvic examination and in someone over 40, sometimes I will consider doing an endometrial papel sample um, to exclude other endometrial causes of her heavy menstrual bleeding. Um, And on a pelvic examination, I always go systematically looking at external genitalia, if there's any polyps or any lower genital causes for her 
symptoms. Um, and then with the speculum examination, having a look at the cervix, collecting a CST or SGI screening opportunistically if she is overdue for one, um, and then doing a bimanual to assess the size and the mobility of the uterus to help guide our treatment options for her. That's great. So I guess from here, we've done our assessment, we've taken a history, um, and actually Fatima already comes to clinic with an ultrasound, but that's often our next line in investigation. I guess um, I'm interested just to kind of touch on ultrasound. What is it? What are the features on ultrasound that helps us differentiate fibroids from other things in the uterus? What are, what are the kind of the, and, and then are there other imaging modalities that we use to sort of differentiate what's going on with fibroids? Yeah, so a fibroid is often quite distinct on an ultrasound. It has a, a specific contour, so you can kind of see a ball-like massive tissue, which is usually hypoechoic and a bit heterogeneous in its texture, but it is usually quite distinct and looks different from a polyp um, or any other uterine pathology. <clears throat> Um, sometimes pedunculated fibroids can be a little bit tricky because they can look like an, another abdominal or adnexal mass, um, but usually they're quite sensitive in being picked up by ultrasound. The one time where it is a little bit difficult with ultrasound is if it's a really large fibroid and sometimes with the ultrasound you can't capture the whole size of it. Um, I've seen 30 week size uteruses and so in these situations a ultrasound won't be able to capture the whole extent of the fibroid and in these cases I refer for MRI over a CT scan just for better definition of the soft um, soft tissue against soft tissue and also in people who are wanting further evaluation for fertility, I request for a sonohistogram, which um, a small catheter is put into the uterus to help um, dilate the cavity and it and helps to show submucosal fibroids, ones that would um, project into the endometrium and have significant impacts on someone's fertility. Okay, perfect. So I think we've got a pretty good idea that Fatima has a couple of fairly large uterine fibroids. Um, I think now is the time let's talk about what options she has for treatment. Um, so if you don't mind, Shirley, would you sort of step through what are kind of the um, maybe first line uh, medical options for how we might manage her? Yeah, definitely. So normally start, you know, outlining treatments in medical or surgical, um, pharmacological and non-pharmacological. Um, of the pharmacological options, we can treat her symptoms. Um, so if she has pain, you can give her Panadol, NSAIDs, ibuprofen or Ponstan. As one that I recommend, mefenamic acid is particularly good for uh, menstrual pain. And tranexamic acid can help to reduce the flow of her bleeding during her periods. It's not a long-term medication. In the long term, she can be on an oral contraceptive pill or have an intrauterine device to maintain the hormonal progression of her fibroid. Um, and also there's an option for GnRH and agonist or antagonist. So um, Zolodex or Luproralin is they switch off the 
hormonal cycle through the action on the anterior pituitary. Um, and these are more of a last-line pharmacological option because they have significant side effects of also causing menopausal um, symptoms and we would recommend add-back therapy if we're going along that um, that line. So um, Fatima does tell us that she did try and use a Marina IUD, the levonorgestrel IUD, um, but without much success um, at actually inserting it in the first place. And despite using NSAIDs and tranexamic acid, she's still having really heavy bleeding. So she actually does want to go ahead and talk about some of those more um, surgical um, interventions. Um, so first-line medical management fails. What are the surgery, what are her interventions available? Yeah, so I forgot to mention that the pharmacological medications don't actually get rid of the fibroids. They just treat the symptoms. Um, as fibroids are not malignant, it's okay to leave them there. And often if it's less than three centimetres, I would recommend medical management first. Um, but medical management doesn't always work. And in that case, then we talk about surgical management. Um, with surgery, I like to distinguish whether fertility is important and that helps us to determine with the patient what the best surgery it is for them. If they want to preserve their fertility or preserve their uterus, then we can talk about myomectomy, which is an operation to remove the fibroid itself um, in keeping the uterus. And this can be done by keyhole or by open operation. It depends on the size, the location and the number of fibroids there are. The other option for fertility pres preservation would be to consider uterine artery embolization. Uh, this is a procedure done by interventional radiologists where they put a catheter up through the, uh, the groin and embolize the art uterine arteries on both sides. And this stops the feeding um, of the vessels to the fibroid, therefore reducing the size and pain and can reduce the bulk symptoms of the fibroid. Again, it doesn't make the fibroid go away, but it can shrink it to a manageable size. Um, it is a fertility-preserving option, but there's very small uh, research done into the implications on future fertility, and there are reported cases of increased obstetric risks in people who've had UAEs. Um, and also there's a, also some small side effects of possible prolapse fibroids or degeneration, degeneration of fibroids and increased risk of infection and admission with this um, method. Often I uh, reserve it for patients who are of increased risk for surgery who are not potentially good surgical candidates. So we try this um, less invasive method first. Um, and then ultimately a hysterectomy can be done, but obviously this is, you know, end, end of the line um, option and it can be done by open vaginal or laparoscopic routes depending on the size of the uterus. Um, we can sometimes use medication like GnRH agonists beforehand to shrink the fibroids to reduce the risk of bleeding and surgical risks prior to surgery. Yeah. All right. So Fatima decides to go ahead and have a myomectomy. And although she doesn't wish to have more children, she prefers to retain her uterus and all proceeds laparoscopically without a hitch. She was re um, commenced on a GnRH agonist for three months prior, which shrunk the fibroid 
of the largest of fibroids quite significantly. But she's still got a fairly large fibroid. And maybe, um, Shirley, if you can just explain um, when someone has a laparoscopic surgery, how do we get a really big fibroid out of the abdomen, um, out of those tiny little holes? Yeah, good question. Um, So the answer is by morselation. So we usually put the fibroid, we, we should put the fibroid into a bag to reduce dissemination of the fibroid into the abdomen. There was a very big landmark case in the US um, with a big lawsuit where a fibroid was morselated without a bag and disseminated leiomyosarcoma um, through the abdomen of a young woman. Um, I think she happened to be a doctor as well. So in bag morselation is the right thing to do and we can either do it mechanically by hand or with power tools. Great. Um, And I guess this is not the case of Fatima, but occasionally we see the same, a a woman just like Fatima who has findings um, on her ultrasound with large fibroids like this and are in childbearing years. And fibroids have some, a few sort of special risks for pregnancy. I wonder if you can just kind of talk, touch on what those risks are um, for everyone. Yeah, so the the most common um, side effect with fibroids is having anemia and having a lower iron and hemoglobin reserve. Um, Fibroids, particularly pedunculated, can tort and cause severe abdominal pain, which is not desirable during pregnancy. And it can also have some degeneration. So red degeneration is when it bleeds into the fibroid. And these can be really tricky to manage um, in pregnancy. And there's not a lot that you can do um, without disrupting your pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and occasionally those um, fibros, when they're degenerating, can increase the risk of things like placental abruption um, and depending on their location can make it a bit tricky for the um, fetus to know where to sit properly so they're often malpresented with big fibroids pushing them out of the way. So a few special things. I've seen a few cases of lower uter- anterior uterine fibroids that can get in the way of a cesarean section. So it's important to know the location of fibroids um, in pregnancy so that you can plan for the mode of birth. Sometimes they can get in the way of the head descent in labour. And so a classical cesarean section is the only way to get around that. And also if a woman has known fibroids, I'd prepare for a potential PPH and be aware of, you know, using 40 units and prophylactic syntocinin in someone with fibroids. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, that takes us to the very end of our case of Fatima. Um, And I want to say a huge thank you to Shirley for helping me out nut through it today. I really appreciate it. Um, And I guess I'd just like to finish by a summary of a few of the key takeaway points um, on our case. So, For me, um, there was a few good ones. Fibroids, uh, we know, are benign smooth muscle tumors and they're defined by their location. So subserosal outside the uterus, intramural within the wall and submucosal within the cavity. Uh, The main risk factors for fibroids are age, obesity, estrogen exposure. And Palm-Cohen is the important mnemonic you shouldn't forget of the other causes of heavy menstrual bleeding. 
Um, considering your treatments in terms of whether or not people are preserving fertility or not, Um, and uh, finally that medical treatments can be used as adjuncts to surgery to sort of improve surgical outcomes and shrink fibroids prior. Final point, um, fibroids have special risks in pregnancy, particularly if they degenerate, are sitting where your Caesar scar is um, or uh, can lead to complications like abruption and PPH. And that concludes our case. So I'll pop a link uh, to a few good resources in the show notes. This is Scrub Up and I'm Lucy Richards. We'll chat to you next time.